Welcome to TopCast and part two of my introduction to Popper, which is an occasional five to ten minute bite-sized personal summary of aspects of the philosophy of Karl Popper that I find valuable. My first piece of Popper today begins here with number one, conjectures. Karl Popper follows in a long lineage of analytic philosophy stretching back to ancient Greece. The idea that knowledge is conjectural, which is to say knowledge of guest, stretches back perhaps to Xenophanes, who lived around 570 to 478 BC. This ancient philosopher seems to have been one of the first to drive a wedge between true belief and knowledge. Xenophanes seems to have understood that reality exists and we can come to know it, but this does not mean we have a final answer. Popper quotes a part of Xenophanes in his great work, Conjectures and Refutations, where he says, But as for certain truth, no man has known it, nor shall he know it, neither of the gods, nor yet of all the things of which I speak. For even if by chance he were to utter the final truth, he would himself not know it, for all is but a woven web of guesses. Popper takes this idea of knowledge being a woven web of guesses very seriously. It is not that all knowledge is a guess unconnected to reality, the opposite. Guesses are anchored to reality by encounters with it, observations. These observations enable us to rule out certain guesses, hence the two arms of Popper's epistemology. Conjectures, the guesses, the claims about what is true, and the refutations, the criticisms, those observations that show some of those claims cannot be correct. Now, perhaps one of the most jarring and surprising aspects of Papirian epistemology is this. Knowledge is guessed. It really is. All knowledge is a guess. Now, to some people, this seems immediately wrong. Scientists are not merely guessing. It's not all guesswork. You may be thinking that right now. And that is right. It is not all and only guesswork, because this would mean fiction, which is completely made up, is just like non-fiction, which is not. But the genesis of any idea is guesswork. Now, if you don't like the word guess, fine, call it a conjecture. Or if you're trained in the sciences or some other similar field, let's say a creative hypothesis. But if you've been to school, have you been to school? Okay, we are actually taught, if not explicitly, then at least by implicit suggestion, that your knowledge is acquired by reading, listening, absorbing the lesson. You aren't guessing, you're being told, and then you learn. But that whole picture, it's not entirely false, but it is misleading. When you listen, when you're told, you're guessing what is meant. And sometimes you are wrong, often indeed. And when you read, you guess the meaning. My own series of podcasts here is testimony to this very epistemology. I've read Karl Popper's and David Deutsch's work, and now I'm telling you some of my interpretations of their work and others who have already read those books and listened to find out those ideas about whether Popper's and Deutsch's ideas are like mine. And it's no accident school and universities form study groups. Together they are each comparing their ideas about what they read or have heard with each other. Each has a slightly different interpretation, but as they get closer to the truth, they tend to converge and they all begin to agree and then they say they've learned the lesson that they need to. Popper's epistemology is called critical rationalism, but it might as well be called creative rationalism because the creative part is where knowledge begins. Once created, then it's criticised. And if it survives this process, we are apt to say, I know it, because then you've no better idea. Two, common sense. Popper is a common sense philosopher. 
Perhaps better, we might say, is a philosopher of common sense. Popper writes in Objective Knowledge that all science and all philosophy are enlightened common sense. Now this stands in contrast to so many other philosophers and philosophies that give the subject a bad name. Common sense entails realism. That thing you see? Yes, it exists. That's just common sense. Can common sense fail? Of course, anything can fail. This is where the enlightened bit comes in. You think you see the sky, well you don't. There is no sky, it's an illusion. You think the rainbow ends there, well try to follow it. It too is equal parts trick of the eye and external reality. But unlike with idealism, which says, taken seriously, everything is in your mind, or it's even more extreme form, solipsism, only your mind exists. Realism simply says that what we tend to think is correct is a good rule of thumb, and we need to have good observations, criticisms of reality, before we give up on that common sense. Common sense, as Popper says, it can be thought of as a vague starting point. And with science and careful criticism, we refine these starting points into grand predictive explanatory theories. But this means I really should say more about three, realism. This is simply the rather prosaic claim that the world exists. It's out there, beyond your own mind, and it can be known. It acts independently of what you think about it for the most part. Popper actually quotes Churchill and in a certain passage in his essay called Two Faces of Common Sense, actually says of Churchill, and I quote, Winston Churchill is still quite unknown as an epistemologist. His name does not appear in any of the many anthologies on epistemology, and it is also missing even from the Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Now why should Karl Popper, possibly the greatest epistemologist and philosopher of the last two centuries, say this of a politician? What had Churchill said that had so impressed Popper? Well, let's just read it. Churchill wrote, I always rested upon the following argument, which I devised for myself many years ago. Here is this great sun standing apparently on no better foundation than our physical senses. But happily there is a method, apart altogether from our physical senses, of testing the reality of the sun. Astronomers predict by mathematics and pure reason that a black spot will pass across the sun on a certain day. You look, and your senses' sight immediately tells you that their calculations have indicated. We have taken what is called, in military map-making, a cross-bearing. We have got independent testimony to the reality of the sun. When my metaphysical friends tell me that the data on which the astronomers made their calculations were necessarily obtained originally through the evidence of their senses, I say, no. They might, in theory at any rate, be obtained by automatic calculating machines set in motion by the light falling upon them without admixture of the human senses at any stage. I reaffirm with emphasis that the sun is real and also that it is hot, in fact as hot as hell, and that if the metaphysicians doubt it, they should go there and see." End quote from Churchill. Popper goes on to say, I may perhaps add that I regard Churchill's argument, especially the important passages which I have put in italics, not only as a valid criticism of the idealistic and subjectivist arguments, but as the philosophically soundest and most ingenious argument against subjective epistemology that I know. I am not aware of any philosopher who has not ignored this argument, apart from some of my students whose attention I have drawn to it. The argument is highly original. First published in 1930, it is one of the earliest philosophical arguments making use of the possibility of automatic observatories and calculating machines programmed by Newtonian theory. And yet, 40 years after its publication, Winston Churchill is still quite unknown as an epistemologist. So that's a rather remarkable recommendation of Churchill from Popper. The bucket and the searchlight. All this is tied together with the distinction between two metaphorical epistemologies, is the procurement of knowledge achieved by pouring it like a fluid from one mind to the next? 
which is a passive process? Or is it rather more akin to a searchlight actively trying to find something that works? The bucket theory of mind is still very much the impetus behind almost all schools almost all of the time. Teachers and educationalists make noises about rejecting the bucket theory, but the truth is that the methodology of schooling is the delivery of lessons. It is not about children finding a problem and falling in love with it, as Popper has called us to do. School is almost always, and will forever remain if it does not change utterly, a place where the bucket theory is in action. The searchlight concept is where a problem is located by the searchlight, and with ever more light brought into focus, and with greater attention, interest, and curiosity, more is revealed until the searchlight should move on. The searchlight is an active process of problem finding and problem solving. The bucket is a passive receptacle. People, our minds, are searchlights, not buckets. Number five, debating definitions. If you have ever been in a philosophical discussion where disagreement has arisen, it can be easy to observe that the way in which the discussion gets sidelined more quickly than anything else is by falling into a dispute about what a particular word means. A philosopher like Sam Harris might make a claim like, morality is about the well-being of conscious creatures. There's much to unpack there and much that I might disagree with, but one way in which to ensure any discussion with Sam goes off the rails almost immediately is to demand he define with great precision what he means by well-being. The reason someone makes this move in any debate is because they know that no matter what the response is that Sam gives, it will contain a term where the interlocutor can say, well, what does that mean? And so on, ad infinitum. Ultimately, we must accept that all definitions are circular, but this does not make claims using words like Sam's there vacuous. They are not. Popper understood this. There is a difference between a philosophical argument and just a prosaic debate. If you have ever watched a competitive debate, like a high school debate or a university debate, the affirmative team will often begin by defining their terms. Indeed, in many places they are expected to. And then it is up to the negative team to dispute that definition or in rare cases accept it. Whatever the case, such a debate is no discussion. It does not allow for a proper philosophical argument. Why? Popper writes in his essay, A Realist View of Logic, Physics and History, that one should never get involved in verbal questions of meaning and never get interested in words. And he continues, If challenged by the question of whether a word one uses really means this or perhaps that, then one should say, I don't know, and I am not interested in meanings. And if you wish, I would gladly accept your terminology. This never does any harm. One should never quarrel about words and never get involved in questions of terminology. One should always keep away from discussing concepts. What we are really interested in, our real problems, are factual problems. Or in other words, problems of theories and their truth. We are interested in theories and how they stand up to critical discussion. And our critical discussion is controlled by our interest in truth. So Popper's idea is a departure from most other philosophers. And recall, most other modern philosophers today, philosophers post-19th century, those who tend in the direction of Wittgenstein, are schooled in a linguistic tradition. They think you really have to get to the nub of what people mean. The question, but what do you mean by that, is almost an attack of sorts. It seeks to require one to justify their choice of words. And especially in the case where any answer to that question is followed by a repeat of, but what do you mean by that? We are in a loop spiraling down into a hole of irrelevance. What philosophy, like science, is actually trying to do is to solve a problem. The search for solutions. Things 
that truly do work.